As we continue our time, let me invite you to recite the Apostles' Creed with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, good morning. How are you all doing? Thanks, babe. Oh, cool. Some are awake. Some want to be here. My name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Thank you all so much for joining us and hanging out with us. Uh, This morning, I just got a couple of things for you uh, as we dive into our time and ultimately our text. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter. You could open or load your Bible. I guess that's the thing to do because you're cool. Uh, Go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 24 to 25 this morning. And while you do that, I'll go ahead and ramble just a bit. Again, if you're new, man, thank you so much for hanging out with us on this uh, summer day. Uh, Fill out a connect card that should be in the chairs uh, where you're seated. Drop it in the offering basket because we'd love to hang out with you. Number two, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we do have Bibles available for you on on the chairs Uh, next to you. Take one. That is our gift to you. If you know someone that would be blessed and would benefit from having a Bible, please take one with you and hook them up. Over the past couple of weeks, we have been walking through the Apostles' Creed. It's been a very beneficial and fruitful time for us. I've really dug it. I love it. Uh, I hope you have too. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at the section of the Creed that reads, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And so uh, what I'd like to do is really just dive into our time, as I mentioned earlier. I just want to dive into our time. I'll eventually get to 1 Peter, and then uh, then we'll see what's what's going on uh, with our hearts this morning. This morning, one of the things I want to answer, a couple of the things I want to answer is, to begin with, is what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? That's ultimately what we're going to be talking about today. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross, and what does that ultimately mean for sinners? Today we're going to be looking at the atonement, or if you want some fancy schmancy language to talk over lunch, we're going to be looking at the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. J.I. Packer calls this the heart of Christianity. And there's a lot that can be said about this particular doctrine and its importance uh, in redemptive history, but today we're simply going to look at three sections. Now I say that, but if you've been with us any time, you know, I'm kind of long-winded, right? It sounds better for me to say we're going to be looking at three sections as opposed to me saying we're going to be looking at nine things, although we are going to be looking at nine things in three sections. We're going to be looking at, ultimately, what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We're going to be looking at the heart of the cross. And finally, the significance of the cross. This is the part uh, under significance where there are implications, And much like last week, and if you weren't here last week, we were looking at the incarnation of Christ. Much like last week when we looked at that doctrine, this doctrine, the doctrine of the atonement, is also one that Christians tend to overlook and dismiss. 
And Christians tend to overlook this doctrine and Christians tend to dismiss this doctrine for several reasons. For instance, some may consider it an old doctrine. In other words, it's old news. Something that happened a long time ago that you know the sequence of events, uh, you know the story, and man, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the now, the here and now. Let's talk all about what Jesus is doing for us, in us, and through us today. And to an extent, I would agree with that conversation and even that position of argument, but we must not forget that we can't talk about that apart from the atonement, that that kind of a conversation, what Jesus has done or what God has done for me in Christ, comes as a result of his work on the cross. The other reason, or another reason, that this doctrine tends to get overlooked this doctrine tends to not get touched on very much, it's because it's an offensive doctrine. It's an offensive doctrine because it displays the cruelty of God, not the love of God. God is love, which is true. But nevertheless, we see his love poured out on the cross. And we can't dismiss this doctrine. If we say, man, the cross in and of itself is an offense, I would agree with you. It is an offense. It's that God entered into human history as the man named Jesus Christ lived the life that you and I can't live and died the death that you and I deserve on our behalf. Yes, it is an offensive doctrine. Even when you look at the history of the cross, yes, it's an incredible offense. When we look at the history of the execution or the form of execution concerning the cross, we see that the Persians invented it, but the Romans perfected it. That the execution by crucifixion was reserved for the worst of criminals. And oftentimes when we view the pictures of the crucifixion or of the cross, we see it up on a really high mountain in Calvary, and we see that, man, God and the two criminals were up there super high, when in reality, when we look at the historical evidence of the crucifixion or execution by crucifixion, we see that the cross wasn't too far up the ground. In other words, the victims were making eye contact and almost at eye level with the crowd. By the way, this was a public form of execution. They were making eye, eye contact with the crowd so that the crowd could continue to flog them and mock them and spit upon them and scream at them. Individuals who were crucified, individuals who were crucified were left up on the cross for hours. See, the whole point of the crucifixion was that it would delay or prolong the victim's death. Yes, eventually they would die, but the goal was to keep them suffering as long as possible. If they were beaten, and if they were still alive, they would not necessarily die from their wounds. They would die from something called asphyxiation, which is a condition where the body is unable to receive the amount of oxygen it needs in order to continue to live. <clears throat> and so as victims would sink into the cross, this position would ultimately deprive them of oxygen. And so what did the Romans do? The Romans created this thing called the mercy seat, which is an irony to this execution. The idea of the mercy seat was that it would prop the victim up to keep them on the cross to suffer longer and eventually die, just not as fast. Further, the cross in and of itself wasn't something that was built from someone who went to go like, like 
Pontius Pilate didn't send them to go to Lowe's and get the best of lumber so that they can create this cross. The cross was something, it was actually like recycled lumber. Like when Jesus carried his cross, he wasn't more than likely the only victim who was crucified on that particular cross. That means it had blood stains, it was recycled wood, so it was all chopped up. Like this wasn't something that was meant to be beautiful. It was an execution. So yes, the doctrine of the cross, the gospel is an offense. And we'll examine this a little bit more later this morning. Part of why this creed is so important is because of the density of the first two words we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Do you guys remember those first two words? I believe. I believe. There's weight and implication to what we believe. Whether you're a Christian or not, there is weight and implications to what you believe. And as we walk into this doctrine of the atonement, the death of Christ on the cross and redemption accomplished should never become old news. It should never be this old doctrine. And if it has, it is because as Christians, we have lost sight or forgotten our first love. The creed reads, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. How did Pontius Pilate make it into the creed? Like, it's kind of interesting, you know? Like, you don't have to believe in Pontius Pilate in order for this to be like some essential doctrine. But nevertheless, he's mentioned. Much like Adolf Hitler is forever known in the pages of Scripture for his horrific atrocities, Pontius Pilate is forever etched in history as the man who delivered Jesus over to be crucified. Pontius Pilate wasn't just a character, but a real historic figure who served as a Roman governor of Judea. Why is this important? Simply because it's a reminder that our faith is not just rooted in prophecy, but history. So let's look to 1 Peter. Let's look to the pages of Scripture to learn more about the significance of this doctrine. So again, if you just got here, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. God, as we walk into our time in Scripture, my prayer is that our hearts would be softened and prepared to receive your word. So as a result, I pray that you would just cast me aside. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work through me and that you will work in the hearts and lives and minds of my brothers and sisters and those who are visiting. God, I pray that as we look at this doctrine and as we look at the life, death, and resurrection of your son Jesus, that those of us who know Jesus would come to know him better 
that we would be led to worship and adoration and humility this morning. And that those who do not know Jesus would come to know him this morning. Further, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would not only be present, but at work in the hearts and minds of your people. I pray that this time would glorify you, make much of Jesus, and that this would benefit us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to go section by section. Y'all ready? Okay. I'll just do this Bible study by myself. Here we go. The first section is, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Right? That's the question that we're seeking to answer, and then we're going to look at some implications as we move forward. So the first question, once again, is, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Before I give you those reasons, each section is going to have three reasons, by the way, so if you're taking notes, you're welcome. Apart from that, before we dive into those reasons, there's a couple of things that we need to do business as we dive into these sections. When we ask the question, what did Jesus accomplish on the cross, we must first remember what his primary mission was on earth. Now, the reason I say that is because often when we read through the pages of Scripture, we tend to want to focus on all the good that he did. And he did do a lot of good. And I think it's important to talk about all those things because all of those avenues are ways for us to make disciples of Jesus. However, those things, those good things weren't his primary mission. Well, I would argue that they weren't his primary mission. Because we want to talk about, man, Jesus prayed and healed the sick Jesus fed the poor. And again, all of those things are good things. We ought to do them as a result of who we are in Christ. But we must remember that his primary mission was to reconcile man to God through the cross. When you read through, for instance, the pages of John, over 20 times, Jesus goes on to say, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. I am here to do my Father's will, and so on and so forth. Jesus' primary mission was to get man to the Heavenly Father, was to reconcile man to God. This was going to be done through the cross, which, as we read through the Gospels, teaches us that the cross was not random. It was not just some form of bad luck. It was his mission. From day one, it was his mission. So, with that being said, what is it that he accomplished? Some of these are going to appear in these other sections, and I'll expand on them as we go. But the first thing that he accomplished was redemption. The first thing that Jesus accomplished on the cross was redemption. Now, The word redemption, particularly in the New Testament, is used in the context of slavery. That is, that redemption meant or means to buy out of slavery. If an individual was deemed a slave, they could be bought by someone, right? We could look at the pages of history and see how that works. Now, when we apply it, to what Jesus accomplished on the cross, the Bible teaches us that not only are we sinners by nature and choice, but that apart from Jesus, you and I are slaves to our sin. 
The Apostle Paul says it this way, that we are slaves to unrighteousness, that we are literally chained up to our sin. Redemption was accomplished on the cross by Jesus, or through Jesus, buying sinners out of slavery. And what was the currency that he used? His own blood. He accomplishes redemption on the cross through his blood. That word redemption is going to come up again later in our time. Because oftentimes we can stop right there and really just think, how convenient that Jesus died for my sin and bought me out of slavery. There are implications to that. And we'll talk about that in a bit. The second thing that he died for or that he accomplished, here it is. Here's your $10 word, propitiation. He accomplished propitiation. The writer of Hebrews says that he is the propitiation for our sins. Let's go back to 1 Peter. That first verse reads, he himself bore our sins. Propitiation is a two-part thing. Peter writes, he himself bore our sins. That's the first part of propitiation. That on the cross, Jesus bore our sin. Not just the things that we should do or that we, that we do that we shouldn't. But including the things that you, man, have guilt over, shame over. He became guilt. He became shame. Paul additionally writes that the one who knew no sin became sin for our sake. That's the first half of propitiation. That on the cross he bore our sins through the wrath of God. The wrath that is intended for all of us outside of Christ, he bore on the cross on our behalf. That's part one. Part two is that he gives sinners his righteousness. You could say it this way, that on the cross, Jesus paid our debt and gave us his credit. That's propitiation. And he accomplished that on the cross. Number three, what did Jesus accomplish? The forgiveness of sins. Going back to 1 Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. We're going to talk about that in just a minute and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That little sentence in 1 Peter, he's not talking. The context is not physical healing, but spiritual healing. He's talking about the forgiveness of sins in this section. Peter is. And not only Jesus, not only did Jesus endure the punishment of sin, but he did so so that we might be forgiven and have faith in Christ alone. We could talk about this all day. Those are three things that he accomplished on the cross. Redemption, again, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Propitiation, he bore our sin, gives us his righteousness, paid our debt, gives us his credit, and finally, the forgiveness of sins. That by his wounds, we are healed. And so that's what Jesus accomplished, okay? Well, then what's the heart of the cross? What do I mean when I say the heart of the cross? 
If you don't hear anything or listen to anything today, I hope you listen to this part. The heart of the cross is God in Christ substituting himself for sinners. I'll say that one more time because that's the main idea. The heart of the cross is God in Christ substituting himself for sinners. Again, three things because we're cool like that. What does that mean? Well, it means, number one, that the cross is central. It is central to the Christian faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that the cross, that the message of the gospel is of first importance. It is the most important thing that if you deny the cross, that if you deny the atonement, you deny the gospel. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that this message that he has received is of first importance. That says a lot about how we display the cross in our culture today. Oftentimes, the cross is viewed as a fashion statement. Some of you might have it as a necklace, right? Some of you might have slapped that sticker on your car. Maybe you have a cross wall in your house, right? That means you're super Christian. (laughs) Anyway, um, maybe you have it tattooed. Maybe you got the cross tattooed, right? The cross is a symbol that connected Christians to the work of Christ. So when we look at it historically, in the first century, when Christians are marking themselves or their house or their walls with the cross, it wasn't some fashion statement. It wasn't this cool, neat cross that they bought at the flea market. They were essentially saying, I identify myself, my family identifies ourselves as Christians, that we belong to Christ, that we believe in his finished work through his death, on the cross. And it wasn't received with comments that were like, cool, where'd you get that cross? That's really awesome. How much did you pay for it? Was it on sale? It wasn't that. It was met with persecution or marginalization. It cast them socially. Today, when we wear the cross or when we have various Christian symbols, I suppose, right? Like, uh, I don't know where this place is at, but I was driving on, uh, what's that, 495? And there's this salon, I think, and it has doves. And someone told me, oh, that's a Christian salon. How do you know that's a Christian salon? Because of the doves. Oh, okay. <laughs> right? That's a Christian. How do you know? Don't you see the fish on the minivan? My bad. Right? Oftentimes, these symbols today are used as a fashion statement. I'm not saying everybody does that. I'm not knocking that. And I'm not knocking if you have a cross wall. Man, that's legit. Cool. Right? That's your thing. Okay? I'm not knocking that. But the question that it does raise is, are you aware of what the cross represents? Let me, let me ask you that again. Right? Whether you got it tatted, I got it tatted, right? Whether you got it tatted, whether you got it on your car, whether you got it on your wall, whether you have it on your email signature, are you aware of what the cross represents? And are you ready to back it up? I mean, we're just being honest, right? Paul says that the heart 
of Christianity is the cross. And he refers to it as of first importance. Are you aware of what it represents? And are you ready to back it up? Number two, the heart of the cross teaches that the cross is scandalous. We used this word last week. I love it. I want to continue to use it. That the cross is scandalous. Now, why is it scandalous? Last week, we learned that the scandal of the gospel is grace. That God died on behalf of sinners. So let's explore that a little bit more. Part of the reason this cross is so scandalous is because of redemption. I told you redemption would come up again. Part of the reason the cross is scandalous is because of redemption. Why? Because redemption means that blood was spilt in order to liberate a people. And we can flip through the pages of history to recognize that. You can go outside of the pages of Scripture and see that the liberation of people, the redemption of people, always costs blood. Let's look to World War II and the liberation of France, where over 1,100 Allied troops died as they liberated the French. They pulled them out of slavery so that they would be not just forgiven, but free through the blood of soldiers. I mean, where else would you like to go? Redemption always costs blood. And so when Jesus cried out, it is finished, the work, the means by which we are reconciled to God was accomplished through his blood. That's what makes it so scandalous. Redemption is a costly grace. It's not just a second, or better yet, I wouldn't even call it a second chance. Because if we call it a second chance, then it's so convenient to us that really Christianity is just filled with athletes who just want that second chance of the glory days. Redemption is not a second chance. It is a costly form of grace. Redemption is a suffered mercy on behalf of sinners. It puts a whole new spin on that. It puts a whole new spin on that, and it ought to convict us because it ought to show us that quite possibly we may not understand grace as much as we say we do. Further, we might not necessarily understand redemption as much as we say we do. Third, the cross displays God's glory. How does the cross display the glory of God? It displays God's glory because suffering comes through glory. What did Jesus endure? He, just, he didn't just endure the cross. He was beaten, his beard was plucked, he was flogged, he was mocked. He suffered on our behalf and died our death, and through that comes glory. It comes glory because even though Jesus died and was buried, that was to illustrate the horror and reality of human sin. And yet, death could not contain Christ. If you look at Acts 2, this is what Peter says. 
This is Acts 2, beginning in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So he's letting them know this is who Jesus is. You guys saw him. He continues, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. His, his crucifixion, his death and burial wasn't random. It was a part of his mission. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The cross displays God's glory because God did not leave humanity without hope. Instead, he resurrected on the third day. He is alive and well. The tomb is empty and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. That's why the cross displays his glory. And so we continue. The heart of the cross teaches us that the cross is central to our faith, not a fashion statement. The heart of the cross teaches us that it's scandalous. The heart of the cross teaches us that it displays God's glory. And so let's look to the significance. What does that mean for you and I? That if we belong to Christ, what does that mean for you and I? Well, before we go into those, we need to realize that the gift of redemption is not a get out of jail pass. That the gift of redemption is not a do over. The gift of redemption is grace that leads to transformation. That's that second half that we don't want to talk about. That's that second half that now inconveniences us. Because it's really easy to talk about convenience when it comes to the death of Christ on the cross for sinners. How convenient that Jesus died for me. How convenient that I am redeemed by Christ, that I've been pulled out of slavery by his blood. I guess I'll just do my own thing. That redemptive grace leads to transformation. You don't just stop. It leads to transformation, and it leads to passion. Here are those three things. It leads to passion for Jesus. It leads to passion for who he is and what he's done because of the heart of the cross that God substituted himself for sinners. That that's a scandalous grace. The grace of redemption and hope is the scandal of the gospel. And so as a result, when we start, uh, you know, diving into redemption and the propitiation of our sins and the forgiveness of our sins, it ought to lead us to worship and adoration and a posture of humility. The second thing is that as a result of this doctrine, it leads us to this place where we're passionately angry, or we passionately hate our sin. Let's go back to 1 Peter. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Check it, that we might die to sin. So you can't just be stagnant. There's no such thing as a stagnant Christian. There can't be. I'm not saying you're not going to have a rough season. 
not knocking that. But you can't just say like, oh yeah, no, there's convenience in the death of Christ for me. <laughs> Thank you. Then you do not understand redemption. You do not understand grace. And you may not know Jesus. I don't know. Maybe that's too harsh. Probably not. Anyway. This is what Al Mohler says. The cross requires an acknowledgement of sin and the impossibility of any works-based salvation. You see, at the cross, you and I are forced to look at our sin. Let's just, I'm going to leave it awkward for a second or two while I wipe this sweat, okay? At the cross, you and I are forced to acknowledge our sin. i wait. Sin is an open, open declaration of war against God. That's what sin is. It's an open declaration of war against God. And at the cross, you and I are forced to look at our sin. Yet, Christ does not leave us without hope at the cross. That's the whole point of propitiation. That he bore our sin and gives us his righteousness so that we would die to sin. There's that transforming, redemptive grace that I just talked about. There is change that happens in the Christian as a result of the Holy Spirit at work in them. I want us, these last two, actually all three of these, but here because we're on this section, then I want us to hunker down here. I want us to hunker here because when we talk about being or having a passionate hatred for our sin, I'm not so sure we do. And this includes me, right? Like I'm including myself here. I'm not so sure we have a hatred for our sin. But the beauty here is that Christ doesn't abandon us without hope. He doesn't abandon us without hope. And so when it comes to a hatred of our sin, man, what I want you to do this morning, what I would encourage you to do this morning, man, I want you to dig into the pit of your heart or I want you to dig into that section that you don't want to talk about. Because more than likely, this is one of the things that the Lord put on me this morning, in particular when it comes to hatred for sin, I think we hate the obvious sins, right? Now, the thing I did, I shouldn't have done, or I should have done that, and I didn't, right? Like, those are kind of obvious, or, or maybe those are things that are external in us, but we don't necessarily like talking about the things that are internal, right? Jesus says that out of the heart flow, like, uh, uh, out, of the, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Uh, Proverbs 3 says that out of the heart flow the springs of life. That's really where we're going to find out whether or not you're serious about sin and yourself and your character and so on. And one of the things that was laid on me was bitterness. I'm not going to go into this rant about bitterness, but I would encourage you to dig into that pit. Nobody likes digging into that pit. Nobody likes digging into the pit of bitterness because all we want to say about bitterness was it's his fault. (laughs) And this is why I'm right. That's exactly why you need to dig into that pit. So if you really hate sin, 
if we say that we really hate sin, then we're going to dig into these pits that we just want to kind of keep to ourselves. If we truly believe in the redemptive grace of Christ, if we truly believe that on the cross propitiation was accomplished, if we truly believe that on the cross we are forgiven of our sin, then we need to do business with some of the things that we don't want to talk about. And when I say that we need to do business, that doesn't mean we just need to ponder and reflect. No, there is a time and a season of reflection, then there's a time of doing. Might need to have some conversations this week, or today, I don't know. See what the Spirit does. Anyway, moving on. Third thing, I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> the third thing that we ought to be passionate for in light of the significance of the cross is evangelism. Is evangelism. Now, the majority, not everybody, and this includes me, the majority of our church are like proud introverts. Okay? <laughs> right? That's an excuse. Let's just put it out there. We can't unite tomorrow. We need to do this today and in public, right? The significance of the cross ought to ignite our passion for evangelism. There's this, there's this video. It's, it's a really old video. I've seen it several times. I'm sure you all have too. You can find it on YouTube. Um, I forgot who sent it to me a long time ago. Anyway, uh, there are these two ma- uh, magicians. Uh, their name is uh, Penn and Teller. You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, I think it's Penn. It's the dude with the long hair, right? So I think it's him. Anyway, I don't know his last name, whatever. Penn the Magician. He's, uh, he just has a quick recording. It's like a five-minute video. You can, again, you can find this on YouTube. And he has been very open about uh, being an atheist and, uh, and, and where he stands and all that stuff. And in this video, it's just him. There's nothing flashy like he did it on his phone or something. And so he goes on to talk about how after a show, he, you know, him and the other dude, like, hang out with uh, some of the fans, talk to them, greet them, stuff like that. And he said at this one show, there was this dude in the back kind of just waiting for him to kind of be available. And so once Penn was available, the guy walks up to him, shakes his hand, and he compliments him. He's like, man, it was a great show, uh, good magic tricks, and um, big fan, all this stuff. And then as the conversation is beginning to lull, the, the guy hooks him up with the Bible. He says, hey, man, I, I wanted you to have this. I wanted you to have this. And in the Bible, he left like a personal note, prayed for him, and, 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 and shared the gospel with Penn. And so Penn was like, hey, man, thanks. I really appreciate that. And that was it. So then he does this video. And he goes on to say that, uh, he says, man, I'm an atheist. But let's say there is eternal life. And he goes on to say this. How much do you have to hate someone not to tell them about eternal life? That is really profound. That is really profound. That this gift of redemption and salvation that we have been given, obtained through the blood of Christ on our behalf, is a gift meant to be shared. Yes, Jesus saves, and we are responsible that he calls us out to go share his gospel. And man, that really stuck with me over this week, because I'll say it again, because whatever. How much do you have to hate someone not to tell them about eternal life? So that begs even more questions. How much do we really love Jesus? Right? We've talked about this before from the pulpit. We talk about what we love. And if we don't talk about Jesus, well, maybe that says a lot about or a little about what we actually believe about him. 
And some would even want to push back here when it comes to evangelism. And I would argue that you're just trying to make an excuse. And as a result, man, I would just say like, okay, fine. What theological disposition do you have? Because really, it's just going to be an excuse. At the end of the day, we can look through the pages of Scripture. You got an excuse. It reminds me, it reminds me of my granddaughter. Her name is Delilah. She's upstairs. And I have a slew of phrases or a variety of phrases that I use with her. One I've shared up here before. One of them is, no te hagas. Now, I'll pause on that, give you kind of a little bit of context regarding that. Some of you are like, no what? No te hagas. No te hagas is like, don't, uh, don't fake it or stop faking it. Like, stop being dumb, right? Like, you're kind of acting out. Now, if you're a parent, um, and, I've, and I've kind of learned this with my granddaughter from time to time, that she'll have these like fake cries, like to get attention, you know what I'm talking about? I don't know if there's a technical term for that, right? But the, like toddlers and infants, they have these fake cries that they're about to cry or they look like they're about to cry, but really they just kind of want to get their own way or they want whatever it is that they're looking at. You know what I'm saying? And so Delilah will do that. And, and it's this like fake laugh. Like, <laughs> like she wants to laugh, but she kind of wants to cry. And, and I'll respond with, no te hagas. And, and her face is like, crap, it didn't work. And so she backs off, right? You know? <laughs> and so when it comes to evangelism, oftentimes many Christians want to be like, like my one and a half year old granddaughter. Like <laughs> they want to like cry and maybe make this excuse. And what I would say is like, no te hagas. Right? Like, no te hagas. Like, you know, don't be dumb. Right? Stop pushing back. This is specific to evangelism. Right? Sometimes Christians would be like, well, it's because it's the equivalent of in Spanish when people are like, es que... You know, they start like moving their foot around some circle, but they never actually get to the sentence. You know what I mean? Like, what about this? Right? They do that, right? Not the agas, right? Like, that's when it comes to evangelism. When it comes to people who have excuses who don't want to evangelize, at the end of the day, I would much rather you say, I just struggle at evangelism. I, I, I need to get better at that, right? Point number three is, that the heart of the gospel, the significance of the gospel ought to lead us to be passionate about evangelism. All of us are literally surrounded by people who don't know Jesus. I don't need to go further into that, and I'm not trying to guilt you. But if you do feel this conviction, that's not me, that's the Holy Spirit. And so as we close, if you're a Christian, I want you to remember that the doctrine of the atonement is at the heart of our faith with real implications. Passion for Jesus, passionate hatred for our sin, a passion for evangelism, that we want more people to come to know Jesus, that we want people to hear the good news of Christ, that your faith has real implications. It's not just a good reminder. It's good news. Not just good advice. It's good news. Christ identifies with us. And through Peter and through Isaiah, he goes on to say, look at the end, verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. If this doctrine has become old news, if this doctrine is something that you kind of stuff in the closet, if this doctrine is something that, man, I just don't want to talk about, 
that I would submit that you're missing out on worship, adoration for Christ, and you're missing out on humility. And so as a result, I pray that, that the talking, the diving in, the discovering, the exploring of this doctrine would lead you to this place of repentance so that it would take you to this place of worship and adoration and humility. And if you don't know Jesus, and when I say if you don't know Jesus, I mean that relationally. A lot of people say, oh yeah, I know, I know who Jesus is or I've heard of Jesus. Now I'm, I'm talking about relationally. That if you don't know Jesus, it is through the teaching of this doctrine that he invites you to come to know him. He invites you to come to know him. Do you feel unworthy? He invites you. Are you suffering? He invites you. He invites you to come to know him. Just like Peter encourages the church, he says, you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Isaiah says the same thing, that you are straying like sheep, therefore repent and return. Yes, the cross is a scandal. It is a scandal because while we were still sinning, Christ died for the ungodly and the unworthy. Let's pray. Lord, as we finish our time, or as we close our time of uh, man, studying your word, Lord, I pray that we would not just reflect and sit on the significance of the cross, but that we would consider all that Jesus accomplished on the cross on our behalf. And that as a result, this would produce implications or this would produce fruit. That we would be, like what Matthew says, that we would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Lord, I pray that this is a doctrine that never gets shut in the closet. I pray that this would be a doctrine that we never forget. In fact, one that we talk about often and celebrate the work of Christ on the cross for us. God, in this time, would you be at work in us, drawing us closer to yourself, that we would remember the words of the author of Hebrews, that it is through the work of Jesus that we have access to you, Father. And as a result, we can receive mercy and grace as we approach your throne in confidence. May that be the spirit of our hearts this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And actually, before we get in there, we're going to go into a time of tithes and offerings. Lord, in this, this is an external form of transformation. That when we give sacrificially, when we give faithfully, when we give generously, it is a result of what you have done for us in Christ and what the Holy Spirit is brewing in us. So may we just be faithful stewards and give generously in order to proclaim your gospel. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.